This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're going underground to recognise the opening of London's Elizabeth Line. We'll also celebrate 120 years of Berlin's U-Bahn, looking at everything from its history to its architecture. And we'll find out how to design the perfect underground transport map. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. The Elizabeth Line, also known as Crossrail, is one of the largest infrastructure projects of its kind. And this week, after decades of work, it finally opened. The biggest expansion to London's underground railway network for more than a century, its trains, when fully operational in 2023, will run 118 kilometres across the south of England, from Reading via Heathrow in the west, through the heart of London, and on to Shenfield in the east. Nine different architecture studios were appointed to design the 10 central London stations, with Wilkinson Air tasked with designing Liverpool Street, the beating transit heart of London's financial district, the Square Mile. To find out more about its design, I was taken on a tour of the station by Wilkinson Air director Oliver Tyler and Julian Robinson of Crossrail. At more than 240 metres, the platforms at Liverpool Street on the Elizabeth Line are the length of two and a half football pitches. They're huge, but as passengers step off the train, they spend only a moment on them before flowing into a grand central hallway from which they can make their way west towards an exit by Moorgate or east towards Broadgate. This hallway space has similar characteristics to the other stations on the line, like Tottenham Court Road. It's part of Crossrail's line-wide design principles. Seats and other paraphernalia are consistent across the stations, so too are the curving concrete panels lining the underground passageways walls. But why let me harp on about these features? Let's hear from our two tour guides who we meet in the central hallway. My name's Oliver Tyler. I'm a director at Wilkinson Air. We are architects and we've been the architects for the station and different options for the station at Liverpool Street since the very early 90s. My name's Julian Robinson. I'm the head of architecture for Crossrail. I've been the client architect effectively making the space for Oliver and, and his teams and the other architects to do their thing with the, with the stations. The idea is that this is the main movement artery yeah. and everyone yeah. comes in off the trains into right. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it keeps the platforms as free as possible. Yeah. And also because the majority of people using this station are going to offices and workplaces around here, they'll be familiar with the station. What you don't want to do, because the platforms are so long, trains are so long, is make a mistake, get out the wrong end, because you're 400 metres, in some instances, apart. But this is effectively, if, you know, whilst we're standing in Liverpool Street, if you were standing at Top Court Road, it would look very similar. Yeah, um, OK, and that's the material use. And that's yeah. the material use, the, the forms of the geometries, um, the use of signage, product, and that way tunnelled stations, as you get towards the train, become very common. And then as you move out of the stations, it becomes more the local geometries, place. You know, there's more an individualistic feel to each mm-hmm. particular halls. Mm-hmm. So, and your role was to sort of, I guess, work with the architects across? My role was to create the space for these guys to do the thing that they do best, which is, is the design. Some people say herding cats. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> We've got that on record now, so. Making our way toward the Broadgate exit, Tyler explains how his firm's work at Liverpool Street slowly moves away from the line-wide design principles to become more individual and bespoke, and yet stays consistent whether you're exiting at Moorgate or Broadgate. All right, so this is the Liverpool Street end we're coming up. So this is the, so we purposely 
I purposely wanted both ends of the station to be Liverpool Street, so there's a very similar architectural feel and trick to it. Some of the other stations where they've got their entrances in sort of quite different sort of areas, some architects have adopted a different identity for each end. Liverpool Street is fairly unique in that it effectively it's in the same place in London, whereas a lot of the other stations they're sort of in two different bits of London. Company Court Road has one entrance in Soho and one in Tottenham Road, so they're slightly different environments yeah. for the they go into. One of the key things you'll be seeing as you're walking through is that it's designed to aid flow, so it's gentle curves. Effectively, that's all generated by taking advantage of the form of engineering that's used, spray concrete lining. And we, we try and avoid corners to make people feel comfortable, make feel safe, and that sort of where they're going is quite intuitive, so there's sort of quite gentle sort of movement of spaces. Of particular note, as we move from the hallway into an airy open escalator space, is the geometric folded concrete soffit, also known as a concrete ceiling plane, which maximises the perception of height and creates a feeling of scale and movement, a feeling passengers will experience as they ride the escalator towards the ticket hall and exit. Okay, from the platform, coming into Liverpool Street, come out through these tunnels, it's just like the, and the idea is that coming to a wow space. It's like cathedral-like almost. Correct, that's how try to conceive it. The scale of it is very similar to a nave of a cathedral and we've adopted this concrete soffit. So this is the structure, we've exposed the structure, but we've in a folded concrete form is the sort of unifying architectural element here at Liverpool Street. And the idea is we throw light up onto that as well so it becomes a sort of reflective surface. I mean, I want, I want to ask as well, like, uh, you, you enter into this space and it's almost kind of like a freeing feeling after coming off the underground, after coming off a packed tube. That's obviously something you want people to feel when they come in, but what, what other considerations are you thinking of when you're thinking about designing this space, thinking about how you want people to feel within it? Well, this, this is slightly unusual. Obviously, with the escalators, they're longer than most escalators. We've tried to make them you know, quite bright with how the lighting works and how the light works onto them. The other issue that we've got here at Liverpool Street and partly a product of, of the entrances being so far apart, we have an inclined lift. This is quite unusual. If you drop a vertical shaft from the ticket hall, you're a long way from the platform. So what the inclined lift does, in many ways, it's more inclusive because you're going the same route that um, people are going down the escalators. But getting in here, you know, it's, it, it's a space where people are quite often standing on the escalators, you know, and you've got the opportunity to look up and enjoy the space. In essence, what we've done is we've taken advantage of, again, the form of construction. You had to sink a big box down here during construction in order to insert the escalators and the like, and rather than fill it back in, we've, we've left it, um, and it gives the passenger benefit of, of, a, you know, of breathing out as you're heading towards the, out of the, state, out of the station. And, and again, the original engineering solution was to have these big horizontal props through this space. Mm. So it's kind of working with the engineers to say, well, actually, what we want to achieve architecturally is, like, as you say, a nave of a cathedral, this, this exciting volume that you come into, working with good engineers and working with engineers who understand what the architect's trying to achieve and, uh, and make it happen. And, and you can see from this, if you had a load of props through there, you just wouldn't enjoy that volume. Should we go up to the top? Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, we can talk about this at the top as well, but I, for me, it feels like you've got multiple challenges or constraints in terms of, so you've got obviously a lot of engineering is involved in, in making this, but then you've also got 
high volumes of people that you're trying to deal with. And I'm curious if you're thinking about just simply getting them out, or is it also uh, about uh, creating a nice experience well, as you're getting out? It, 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 to, be, to be frank, it, it's part um, yes, the, the stations are, have got to be designed to be very efficient to move people because, you know, because of the numbers of people, you don't want people blocking the station up for the effect. So you have to design to get the free flow through, plus you have to design obviously for, for emergency conditions, so that tends to drive a lot of sizing as well. Also, we're very cognizant that you want to have a nice passenger environment. You've got a nice, nice experience when you're walking through the station. It's part of the journey. It's the challenge for an architect, isn't it? You know, that you, you want people to enjoy your buildings, you want people to enjoy your space. Through design is how you influence how people experience it. And there are a lot of very pragmatic issues that have to be addressed within here. You see there's a lot of perforation on the walls, so you have to, you know, to, to create the right um, acoustic environment so that people can hear PA and things like that. That again starts influencing how we set out and lay that patterning. What we've done here is rather than put lights in the soffit wherever we can, we throw light across the surface. It aids and makes it easier to maintain it. Whereas if you know if the lights were all in the soffit, it'd be very difficult because you'd have to fill the escalator with scaffolding if you had to change the light. But that that gives us then the opportunity to use the ceiling as a sort of source for the lighting. The mix of the concrete is a reconstituted Portland stone mix, which is echoes of all the buildings around here. It's very much the traditional material used in the city. But then we've added mica into it, and that gives it a little bit of sparkle. So it makes the surface a bit more interesting when you throw the light across it. And then you'll notice the, the, the ribs, the ridging in the surface. That helps deal with sort of visual undulations uh, within there and, and gives a bit of texture and makes it you know, more visually interesting. The entrance and exit into the Eastern Underground Ticket Hall is through a striking five metre high glazed canopy located in an open pedestrian plaza. Natural light filters below ground during the day, while at night the canopy acts as a lantern with artificial lighting from inside shining out of the glazed entrance to illuminate the streetscape. So this, this, this was an opportunity with creating uh, this, this glazed canopy as an entrance mm. into the station to get daylight into Ticket Hall. Obviously, it's, you know, one welcomes getting daylight in spaces wherever you are. And the idea was to make this quite sculptural, but have echoes of what the ceiling's doing. So we have these stainless steel portals that fan out, allowing light to come through, but also light up through them at night. It is, it is amazing to come from that underground space and step out, I guess, yeah, at the heart of East, the yeah. East End. And it's so bright and light. Yeah. I mean, it's an overcast day and it's so bright and light. Yeah, well, it, it's a real shame we haven't got sun because when, when the sun's on here, you get a very nice level of light that comes come, come through. Effectively, we've created a new square, you know, public, public space. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of prototypical with a lot of the crossroad entrances where they've become pedestrianised, the streetscapes become pedestrianised, so people are spilling out, there's no traffic. Big, big benefit for, for the traveller and, and for the local, local big, real businesses, really. I don't know, speaking earlier, Oliver, we were talking about this almost becoming a beacon at night as yes. well. When, so a lantern. A lantern, sorry, my apologies. No, 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 sorry. <laughs> what we've tried to do with the entrance is, and with a lot of what we've done downstairs below, is, is make within uh, the urban realm that it's intuitive, that you know, from a distance you see it glow and say, oh, that's clearly an entrance. And similarly at the West End, you know, there's the blue glass portal. It's very much trying to stand out from the, the, the background buildings as well. 
So, so you know that people are confident, know where they're going, feel secure, feel safe, and and it's very intuitive. You know, there's no confusion about where you're heading. My thanks to Oliver Tyler, director of Wilkinson Air, and Julian Robinson, head of architecture for Crossrail. We'll be back after this break. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com slash film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. Berlin's vast U-Bahn celebrates its 120th anniversary this year. The rail network, which runs both above and below ground, was an important piece of public infrastructure when it was introduced in the increasingly crowded German city in the early 20th century. Writer and historian Jesse Simon has long been traversing the city for his project U-Bahn Berlin, documenting and celebrating the network's unexpected and quirky design details. His analysis provides an insight into Berlin's history, which we'll hear about here, and also an understanding of the design elements from a range of different styles, including Art Nouveau, Modernism and Pop Art, that can be used by other designers working on underground rail systems across the globe. We caught up with Simon to find out what he's learnt riding the U-Bahn. The project was a sort of natural evolution of two other projects that I was working on. Berlin typography was really designed to look at the amount of text that appears in the city that sort of maybe passes us by that we don't realize is there. Signs that looked at inscriptions on buildings. And one of the things that it, that it looked at and one of the things that really got a lot of positive response were the signs on, on the underground stations. I think what makes them interesting is that whereas in somewhere like London or Paris, you have a very uniform quality to them. And, you know, the, you find the same signs in every station. In Berlin, there is a corporate identity or a, an identity that governs the U-Bahn network. And yet, there is so much variation within that. There are so many signs from different eras, different periods, of course, from the, the age in which Berlin was two cities, East Berlin and West Berlin. So there's a lot of variation in the typography, certainly, of the U-Bahn network. Wittenbergplatz, Übergang zu U2 und U3. Achtung, Türen können automatisch öffnen. Please note, doors may open automatically. Achtung, dieser Zugfeld. There was another project that I was working on, which was called Berlin Texture, about sort of small architectural or design details. It was patterns and colors and textures. So it was a lot of photographs of walls and tile patterns that I think a lot of people would walk by every day and they would sort of make a subconscious impression on them, but they might not necessarily notice. What I was doing with these is I was sort of 
lifting them out of their urban context and placing them right in front of you, saying, look at this, this is beautiful. This is the world that you live in, that you walk through every day, and, and it's beautiful. There are a lot of interesting textures on, on the Ubon. There's a lot of interesting architectural details, metal and tile and stone. And so these two different projects kind of eventually dovetailed into one. I thought, well, I've been taking all of these photographs of textures and tiles and patterns, and I've been taking all of these photographs of signs and typefaces. What would happen if I went on a tour through the entire underground network and just really highlighted the incredible, the extraordinary amount of, of diversity that, that's there. What has impressed me most of all is that each line has its own identity and its own sort of series of quirks. Many of the lines changed shape over the history of their creation. So one station that used to be on the U1 maybe is now on the, the U2 or something similar. But you can see that there are these different repeating patterns. And obviously you can see when in the individual lines were built and the sort of similarities that exist between these stations. The U2, for instance, there are a lot of these wonderful structural columns. They're, they're made out of steel, but they've got these wonderful sort of faux ionic capitals on top. They're made of metal and not stone, but they're this wonderful example of how the builders of the time sort of imagined that these were palaces of transport and there are these little neoclassical details that show up in it. I think Alfred Grenander was very much the father of the Uban network. <laughs> he was a Swedish architect and he designed really many of the iconic stations from the first wave of, of the network. And his stations are extremely diverse. He did above ground stations, he did underground stations, and there's very much a palatial quality to them. He was celebrating the idea of, of public transportation by using influences from the neoclassical movement but also he was very modern for his time. I think there are a lot of really wonderful architectural details that he put into his stations that embody an early 20th century optimism. I think the opposite end of, of that, there are the stations built in the 70s, which I think represent the highest plateau of achievement that Berlin Underground Network reached. The level of invention in these stations is extraordinary. As you move from one station to another, they get more and more outrageous in their designs. If you go from Fairberliner Platz to Konstanzerstrasse, which has this wonderful 70s brown and orange pattern and this really wonderful minimal typography. You get to Jungfernheide, so a few stations onwards, and you have these explosions of tile that are just different colors and, and these weird patterns. 
As you go, the sort of journey gets more and more psychedelic until finally you reach Paulsternstrasse. It's so colorful and it's, it has these pastoral scenes of these giant flowers and sunbursts and it's really quite amazing. stations represent the sort of architectural trends of their day. And something that, that I've noticed is that right now there's a, a really a backlash against some of these 70s stations. So the station that I looked at, Bismarckstrasse, on the account, there was a wonderful, very futuristic, very minimal design and they've torn all that out and they're now replacing it with these really classical tiles that that sort of look like they should have come from the 20s or 30s. There was this period in Berlin where obviously the period of division where there were two cities. The, the city was divided into East Berlin and West Berlin and they were autonomous cities completely cut off from one another but they evolved in parallel and they evolved in very much according to their own design but they produced some i would say highly successful examples of architecture urban design including many of the u-bahn stations and now there seems to be a move in the sort of age of reunification towards erasing the good things that emerged from the era of division. So we're getting a lot of the really beautiful stations from the 70s, Bismarckstrasse being one example, Schlossstrasse in Steglitz being another one, where they're stripping them down, they're taking out everything that suggests that this period of division was actually in some way successful, that it produced good things, and they're sort of making them modern and a bit bland, if you ask me. And it seems a real shame. My thanks to Jesse Simon there and to Monocle's Sonia Zurevliova for conducting that interview. We'll be back right after this. They say you host the Monocle Daily for two stints in your career, once on your way up and once on your way down. It's good to be back. The Monocle Daily is our early evening show, live from London and Zurich every weekday at 1800, that's 1900 CET. Join me and our expert panels as we review the day's events in Europe, follow developing stories in the Americas, and welcome early risers in Asia and Australasia. The Monocle Daily also features reports and analysis from Monocle staff and correspondents around the world, and a host of fresh features taking a wider, deeper, or lighter look at the news. Join us for the Monocle Daily every weekday at 1800 London time, 1300 on the east coast of the United States, right here on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, we turn our attention to something that fascinates design enthusiasts the world over the humble Underground Rail Network map. 
To find out more about how these jewels of graphic design are created and what the future holds for some of the world's most iconic transport maps, Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court spoke to Max Roberts. He's professor of psychology at the University of Essex and also a map designer and researcher, recently creating the urban transit map for the German city of Cologne. We begin by asking Roberts whether the first underground maps bear any similarity to those that we see in use today. There's similarities in terms of design rules. The first underground maps were individual line diagrams on underground trains. They started appearing around 1910 or so. They just took the line the train was on and presented it a straight line in a carriage. And in 1933, what Beck essentially did was join all these individual train maps together to one big diagram. Now, of course, when Beck did his job, he did it beautifully. It was a wonderful, clear diagram. But time has not been kind. Since then, (laughs) hundreds of stations have been added to the underground map. The printed pocket diagram is the same size. And the map is also overloaded with a lot of information on it, which wasn't there in Beck's time. So it's transformed from a clear, simple diagram of a small network to a rather cramped, complicated diagram covered with caveats about how the network operates. So that's obviously how the London Underground map has gradually changed. But perhaps looking at it more broadly and from a global perspective... Where have the landmark points over the last hundred years been in terms of map design? We can go back to Beck's time because there are major changes in the way in which Beck saw London. In 1953, he completely redrew the underground map and became a much more abstract diagram, much less geographically accurate. And that probably creates a demise because people get upset when maps distort geography too much. (laughs) And this one did a lot. Harold Hutchison famously didn't like that map and he attempted to create his own amateur one which then um, crashed and burned horribly it was a really nasty design with angular corners strange angles on it lots of sort of compressed stations just where the map was most complicated in the early 60s Paul Garbutt saved the underground map with a version that sort of very much sort of today's design inherits it he included New Victoria Line Jubilee Line in 1979 The biggest changes came about in the sort of 1990s and 2000s when the Jubilee Line was extended. Non-underground lines started appearing on the map. It became more congested and people began to lose sight of sort of the way in which designing a map makes it effective and helps people. So we get the overground on it as well. We get lots of extra stuff on the line. It's not been fundamentally redesigned or rethought since about 2000. They've just crammed more and more onto it. And it's it's really reached the point at which it's overloaded and that design is sort of failing quite badly. Mm. I have five criteria for a good design. One, it simplifies individual lines so they're easy to follow. Two, it's coherent. You know, the, the lines sort of fit together nicely. They work together as a whole. It's balanced so you don't get crushed up suburbs and empty spaces. It's geographically reasonable so nobody's really sort of misled. There's no weird stuff happening in terms of stations sort of appearing in strange places. And it's aesthetically pleasing as well. 
and the current underground map fails by all five of these criteria. <laughs> now, looking at the art of underground map making, at its first and foremost, it's seemingly about the design of information in a simple and easy to understand way. How important is a, a graphic designer's role in this? And um, I guess also how important are the aesthetics? The advantages of underground rail system is you don't actually know where you're going. You don't really know where they're heading north, south, east or west. And if you're in a cast iron tunnel, your compass won't help you either. <laughs> and so this is a disconnection with the streets and the transport means that there's a lot of scope for a designer to actually take away information that's really not needed. So it becomes a series of nodes, stations, connecting points. You know, it's all about how the network operates together rather than where the network is. For a walking map, especially in a complicated city like London, where the streets sort of meet at all sorts of strange angles and there's lots of little streets, you really need that geographical accuracy to calibrate in yourself. Now, I realise this is probably quite a hard question to answer, but um, maybe just to finish, uh, do you have any particular favourite maps? Oh, um, I've never seen a map that I haven't wanted to fix. And, <laughs> uh, and that includes my own maps. I'm, I'm far too much of a perfectionist. It, it tends to be medium-sized cities whose maps I like. You know, I, I like you know, maps like sort of Copenhagen and St. Petersburg, where you know, designers sort of keeping control of design and keeping them elegant and simple. There seems to be a sort of information threshold. And once you sort of cross that, the designer almost loses control of the map. So when you look at sort of the great cities like Tokyo, New York, Paris, London, these are all cities where you look at the map and you think, well, maybe these need a second thought. Maybe there's maybe there's ways of doing this which are better. And there's maybe in the bigger cities of all where people need the most help, they're not getting the best possible design. Professor Max Roberts in conversation with Charlie Filmer Court there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Filmer Court and Maylie Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>